Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In the early part of the 1500s, in the Iberian Peninsula, where Spain and Portugal are located, people who were not followers and adherents to the Roman Catholic faith were expelled, required to convert to Catholicism, or were killed. At that time, there was a sizable Jewish population living in those two countries, and especially in Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. The book, The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon, is a story about what happened to the Jewish people of Portugal and those of Lisbon at that time. It's written by Richard Zimler, an American who lives in Porto, Portugal. I met with Richard Zimler at his home in Porto, Portugal in July of 2004, and I asked him about this history. He began by telling what prompted him to write The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon. Well, one day I was visiting my mother uh, in, uh, just outside New York, and my mother was always a great reader, so she has a huge library of books, and in, in the room where she keeps her art books, I found a book about Jewish manuscript illumination. And I knew nothing whatsoever about Jewish manuscript illumination, but as I picked, when I picked up the book, I discovered these incredibly beautiful reproductions of manuscripts made in Spain and Germany and Poland or Italy, all over Europe uh, from let's say the 11th to the 16th century. Uh, illustrations of biblical stories, of Haggadah, of Torahs, um, and I was fascinated mostly by the colors and the beauty of the images. And I quickly discovered that there was a school of illuminators working in Lisbon prior to the Inquisition and a light bulb went off in my head in the sense that I had been to Lisbon before to visit friends. Nobody had ever told me about this tradition and I thought, wow. So suddenly I had this idea that I could write a book about a manuscript illuminator, an artist, Jewish, living in Lisbon prior to the Inquisition. So this would have been in the 1490s? Yeah, something like that because the Inquisition started in Portugal in officially in 1536 and I knew it had to be before that because the the Christian authorities, the Catholic Church, uh, made it a crime for anyone to have Hebrew books and so I knew I'd have to have my manuscript illuminator living before that time. So I didn't know exactly when, uh, you know, whether it was the 14th century or the 15th century, I didn't know and of course I knew I'd have to do a lot of research to write realistically about people, Jewish people and Christian people living in Lisbon at the time that I'd have to know what clothes they wore and what they ate and how they built their houses and, and that's where my research started. Well I want to know how they lived, the clothes they ate, how they built their houses and so forth, but first what, let's put the Inquisition into perspective in relationship to the Jewish people who lived in, in the Iberian Peninsula at that time, as well as the other people who were here who weren't uh, Roman Catholics. Okay. Well, the Inquisition in the Iberian Peninsula started in Spain, and of course Spain and Portugal were separate countries then, so it started in Spain in 1486. And basically the Inquisition was started, there's some misconception about this because some people think uh, it was meant to persecute Jews. 
it was not meant, being very specific and accurate, it wasn't meant to persecute Jews. It was meant to persecute Jews who had converted to Christianity. So the idea was that the church would seek out people who were now Christians, who had once been Jewish, but were now Christians, and learn and discover and persecute them if they were lapsing, so to speak, if they were going back to their Jewish ways. So that started in Spain as early as 1486, and it took 50 years to come to Portugal in 1536. But I have to say that the persecution of converted Jews started earlier in Portugal without the mechanism of an inquisition. It started as early as 1497. This gets a little bit complicated with dates, I'm sorry about that. But in 1497, the Jews of Portugal were converted en masse. Uh, they were forced to convert. They were basically said, we will take your children, we will kill you unless you convert to Christianity. So in 1497, all the Jews who couldn't escape were converted to Catholicism, and that's when the persecution began in Portugal. Of the converted Jews, of the converted the new Jews, Christians, of the new Christians, exactly, who still wanted to practice their old tradition, exactly, because the Inquisition was set up. I mean, it's kind of an interesting concept. It was set up to capture the enemy within, so to speak, because once the Jews were converted to Christianity, in theory, they were no different from the other Christians. And so that made this whole concept of the enemy within, the enemy who's invisible, whom we can't tell is any different from the other people. And so the, this mechanism, this diabolical mechanism, I would say, was set up by the church and the state to root out those Christians, quote unquote, who continued to practice their Judaism in secret. Because there were quite many who did, obviously enough, if you've been forced to convert, then quite a number of you, a high percentage of you, are going to insist on practicing your real tradition, at least in secret, and at your own great risk, of course. What was the percentage of the population that was Jewish at that time? In Portugal, they say that the population was about 5 to 10 percent Jewish. So given that the population of a city like Lisbon, which was, would have been about 65,000 people in 1500, there were probably no more than five, 7,000 Jews at the time. Um, but that's a pretty significant proportion of the population. It's obviously a lot more than there are Jews in the United States now in terms of percentage. So everyone would have known someone Jewish back then and there were no, unlike some areas in Northern Europe like Germany and England, there were no professions off limits to Jews. So you had Jewish shoemakers and Jewish surgeons and tailors and vintners and a whole range of professions. So the Jews were actually, strangely enough, given what happened to the Jews in Portugal, uh, they were quite tolerantly treated for, for many hundreds of years in Portugal. Yet, shortly after this Inquisition, in the beginning of the 16th century, 1508, 1515, many of the Jews fled. Why? Well, as I was saying, it, shortly after they were converted in 1497, the persecution started. What happened was the king, who was King Manuel at the time, he gave the Jews 20 years to lose their Jewish customs. He said to them, quite openly, a law was passed saying, the Jews in my country have 20 years to practice, to continue to practice some form of Judaism, even though they're Christians. Although it's frowned upon, we won't arrest them, we won't send them to jail. It was frowned upon, but sort of under the table permitted. But, but this don't teach it to your children. Exactly. Don't teach your children, don't do it openly. That didn't happen. What happened was he started 
there was a pogrom in 1506 in Lisbon in which 2,000 of these converted Jews were dragged from their homes, killed and burnt in two huge pyres in the, the main square of Lisbon. It's still the main square of Lisbon. So every time I go to Lisbon and I pass that main square, of course, I think about the 2,000 Jewish people, essentially, who were murdered and burnt there. And when I discovered that, as I was saying before, I, ha I knew I had to do a lot of research to write this book. And in the course of doing that research, I discovered what is called the Lisbon Massacre, which is these 2,000 people dragged from their homes and killed. Um, and as soon as I discovered that, I knew I wanted to make it the background of the novel, in part because obviously it's a dramatic event in itself, but I had already been to Portugal several times to visit friends, and no one, I mean, every, all of my friends knew I was Jewish, and no one had ever told me about this. And in asking people in Portugal about this massacre in 1506, I quickly learned that, like many countries, the Portuguese wanted to hide this fact. They, they prefer to speak of the positive events in their history and hide the negative events. But as a writer, I love writing about things that other people don't want to talk about, that other people would prefer to forget. So right away I knew that I could write about a manuscript illuminator living in Lisbon, but I could have this pogrom, this terrible event that happened, be the background for the book. So the book begins uh, in Lisbon and then it transfers to Constantinople or now Istanbul. Well, as you were saying quite rightly, a lot of the Jews, whoever could basically, fled Portugal. But it was very difficult because you had to get a special permit from the king or from whoever worked for the king then to travel overseas. To be able to get on a boat. To be get on the boat overseas. You quite literally couldn't travel. It was like a passport. Without that, you couldn't go anywhere. And of course, the king was not about to permit his former Jewish citizens from just leaving for any reason they wanted. So they either had to flee secretly or they had to somehow get this permit. Um, and many thousands did flee and, as you pointed out, Constantinople became, because of that, the largest Jewish city in Europe at the time. Not many people know that, but in the early part of the 16th century, Constantinople, I believe, had 36 synagogues. And it was basically all Jews fleeing from Portugal and Spain. The Sultan was wise enough to say, anybody who Spain kicks out, anybody who flees Portugal is welcome in my country. And that's what happened. So in the book, uh, curiously enough, the book starts out in Constantinople, and then it's a kind of a flashback, not a real flashback, but it starts out with one of the main characters in Constantinople living there, and it ends in Constantinople. So it's kind of like bookends framing the story that occurs in Lisbon. Let's stay with the Inquisition for a moment. Was it focused on Jewish people or was it focused on people who were not Christian? Well, that's a good question too. It was focused on anyone who had converted to Christianity and whom they believed, they the Christian authorities, whom they believed was practicing some other religion in secret. So in other words, it could be a Jew who had converted to Christianity, or it could be an Islamic person who had converted to Christianity, or it could be someone even practicing what they considered sorcery. Because witchcraft and sorcery was still a prevalent folk form of religion in Europe at the time. Um, so basically they went after anyone 
whom they believed was not practicing proper Catholic doctrine in their home or in public. Converted or not converted? Well, this gets a little dicey here because in theory, the Inquisition had no power over anyone who was openly Jewish. In other words, someone who had not converted to Christianity. Where this gets a little like catch-22 is that all the Jews of Portugal had to convert. So there were basically no open Jews living in Portugal then, no one who hadn't converted. But for, for instance, there could be a situation where a Jewish merchant from Milan or a Jewish merchant from Amsterdam was visiting Portugal. And in theory, the Inquisition had absolutely no power over that person because that person had never accepted Christianity. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Richard Zimler about his book, The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon. We're visiting with him in his home in Porto, Portugal. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Richard, you offered to describe to us how the Jews lived at this time. Can you do that and can you explain was their way of life significantly different from how the other people who lived here at that time lived? Well, again, those are two, two very good questions. Um, I'll start with the second half first. All the indications we have are that the Jews, in some ways, did not live any differently from the Christians. In other words, their houses were built the same way. Uh, would have been built of stone at the time. The streets were all stone or mud in some cases. Um, the clothing they would have wore would have been basically the same, although at some periods in Jewish history they would have been forced to wear a badge. Usually it was a yellow circle denoting them as Jews. Um, again, they would have been forced to live at sometimes in ghettos, in other words in neighborhoods that would be predominantly Jewish and not allowed to live outside of those neighborhoods. But even that in Portugal was very lax. Um, we know that because every 10 or 15 years the king was passing a new law saying the Jews have to stay in their neighborhood. So we know from that that the Jews were not staying in their neighborhood, that they were intermarrying, that they were moving outside of their neighborhoods and living anywhere they wanted to. So Portugal was actually a, a bit of an island of tolerance in, inside an intolerant Europe, at least in terms of, of Judaism. Um, that being said, I should add that the, because they lived in these ghettos, the Jews did not have the full rights of other citizens. They made sort of an exchange with the king that said, we accept not having full rights and we will pay extra taxes, but you will grant us the power to control our neighborhood. In other words, in their ghettos, in the Lisbon ghetto, in the Porto ghetto, the Jews were allowed to control their own schools, their own synagogues, their own bathhouses, their own shops. It was basically like an auto autonomous island, I sometimes say, within a Christian country. So to that extent, the Jews did live differently, although as a, I'd, you know, I want to emphasize that you know, they ate the same food, the culture was very similar, they spoke Portuguese. This was not the case of two completely separate cultures, at least not in Portugal. And in terms of how, how they lived, that's always a challenge for any novelist to imagine how people lived in a different century. So you have to take your mind back to a period before all the obvious things, before electricity, before cars, before all the modern conveniences. 
and write about people who you know had clothes made by hand and who built their houses by hand and whose streets weren't paved and who had uh, dung heaps inside the city walls that smelled terribly and that people threw their refuse outside their windows and um, people had slaves and so you have to throw your mind back to that period and try to write from from within that and that's the great challenge of any novelist is to bring the sights and the smells and the way people talked to the reader and hopefully that's what that's what I've done in the last cabalist of Lisbon how do you do that how how do you juxtapose yourself take yourself from the year that you wrote the book back 600 years you know it's for me I can't speak for other novelists but for me it's a process of immersion I read as much as I can about the people back then and the cities back then um, and after I've read 20, 30, 40 books about the time, about the philosophies of the time, about I read cookbooks, I read uh, mythology of you know what stories people were telling back then. I read everything I can, um, you know, including city records about. Uh, what the buildings looked like, how they were built, how many stories there were, uh, what the streets smelled like, what the markets sold, you know, what kind of food was sold in the markets, because we forget that America had just been discovered quote-unquote back then and so Europeans didn't eat potatoes they didn't eat tomatoes, these were all new world foods, so you have to go back and, and examine what what was here and you immerse yourself in that and at a certain point it can take two months six months a year it took me about a year in writing the last cabalist at a certain point you feel it's like a magic process you feel as if you're back there you feel as if you know what it's like you feel as if you can walk the city streets and hear what people are saying and smell the olive oil and the codfish and hear the sound of someone hawking the fruit you feel like you're there and that's when you start to write and you hope you don't make any big mistakes that people catch later and of course you check over what you do as you write so it, it's sort of a magical process of immersion I'd say let's move to Constantinople Istanbul for a moment in your story your character finds a story that was written by someone in Lisbon and transported to, uh, is to Istanbul and is saved. Tell us about that story and, and what it represents, how it came to be. Well, it came to be because I, well, let me just say what the story is and then I'll talk a little bit about what came to be. At the very beginning of the novel, um, I talk about a manuscript that I, Richard Zimmler, found in Istanbul when I went to spend a year there doing a postdoctoral post work. And um, the manuscript talks about what happened in Lisbon in 1506, this massacre in which 2,000 Jews were killed. And it was written by someone living in Lisbon at the time. And I discovered it in, I guess you'd say, the basement, which hadn't been looked in for many years, of the house I was staying in. So that's the way the novel begins with this manuscript. And it, I, I thought it was a good way for me of bringing the reader to the period, to 1506. Because sometimes you think, well, we're living in America in 1998 or 2004 or whatever year it is. And Istanbul and Lisbon are far away and 1506 is far away. How do I bring the reader to that period and tell them a true story? Because although you're writing fiction, 
When you're writing it, it may sound strange, but when you're writing it, you feel as if you're telling the truth. You're telling the truth of these... I mean, I felt the weight of these 2,000 people who were murdered in Lisbon on my shoulders as I wrote the book, and I thought, I have to write a very good book, and I have to tell the truth about what happened to them, because they did die. I'm not making any of this up. And so, although the book, although the main characters in the book are fictional, and although this manuscript I find is fictional, everything I relate in the novel is the truth. The truth about the pogrom, the truth about what the king did, the truth about what my family suffered, uh, the truth about what it was like to live under a constant set state of siege, which really was the Inquisition and the time before the Inquisition. It was like living in a dictatorship that has a state of siege which will go after you and arrest you and persecute you if you don't believe the right thing. And so I felt that having this manuscript was my way of saying to the reader, this story is true. This did happen. And it's important that we know it happened because these people suffered and died. And, you know, and again, I have to come back to the fact that in Portugal, people didn't want to talk about this. And after my book was published here, I had many people coming up to me afterwards and saying, was this true? Were the Portuguese that terrible back then? Um, and these were Portuguese people. And these were Portuguese people because it's not taught in the Portuguese schools. It probably still isn't. I mean, and to that extent, I feel like I've done, quite apart from the literary merits of the book, if there are any, I feel like I've done a public service in the sense of I brought an injustice to light and commemorated these people who died and maybe in some small way I've changed the way that Portuguese Christians view their own history and view their relationship with Jews. And I think, you know, I'm glad to have done that. I, I think it's an important thing to do. And, and, and from that point of view, I'm, I'm very glad I wrote the book. The title, The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon, refers to the somewhat mystical impression of Judaism, the Kabbal. Do you bring in that mysticism in the book, or do you stay more with the traditional history of the Torah? I try to have both the mystical Jewish tradition of the Kabbalah and the more traditional Jewish practice in the book. Because as I was doing the research, I discovered, I knew nothing about Kabbalah, I knew nothing about that mystical tradition, so for, it was a real revelation to me. And what I learned was that there was an oral and a written tradition during many centuries in Europe and elsewhere, which involved trying to put Jewish people, Jewish practitioners, in direct contact with God. And so they did this through all sorts of techniques like meditation, for instance, which we associate more with Buddhism and Hinduism, of course, but which was a Jewish practice inside the tradition of Kabbalah. And I grew fascinated with it, and so I tried to put that in the book by making the main character, the narrator of the book, a young Kabbalist living in Lisbon at the time. And what that enabled me to do, so I'm able to talk a little bit about that philosophy and the beliefs and the symbolic practices that they entered into, but it did something more important for me as a novelist, which was by including this deeper level of Judaism, I refer to it as a deeper level because it's very much concerned with symbolic reasoning and in, in the real issues of life and death and solidarity and what we're here for. So by making my narrator a Kabbalist, I was able to talk about those big issues because I like that. I mean, I, I don't just want to write a page turner. Hopefully the book is captivating and will keep people reading it. But I, you know, I like to talk about you know, why we're here 
what's the purpose of all this, um, what's the meaning of friendship and solidarity and what does betrayal mean, and what does it mean for 2,000 Jews to have died in Lisbon, what does it mean for them, what does it mean for the Jews, what does it mean for all of Europe, what does that mean about the nature of God, and so it gave me a chance to write about all those big things. Richard, is there a portion of the book that you can read for us? Absolutely. This is right at the beginning of the novel and it sets the stage a little bit for Lisbon at the time. The day of our first Passover Seder began dim and dry, like all the dawns of late. We hadn't been blessed with rain in more than 11 weeks and would have none today. As for the plague, it had been sending shivers through our bodies and souls since the second week of Heshvan, more than seven months now. King Manuel's half-made Christian doctors had resolved that cattle were perfect for soaking up the airborne essences which they blamed for the disease, and so 200 days that overheated cows had been let loose to wander the streets. Manuel himself had long fled our misery with most of the aristocracy. From Abrantes, three weeks earlier, he'd issued a decree establishing the construction of two new cemeteries outside the city walls for the scores who were taken to God each week. The souls of the dead were beyond being encouraged by such a gesture, of course, and one could hardly blame the living for regarding the decree as simply one more indication of the king's ineffectual pragmatism and cowardice. Was it a turning point? Certainly daily life began to take on an edge of cruel and despairing madness. In the last three days, I'd seen a collapsed donkey blinded with his master's dagger, his eyes spurting blood, and a girl of no more than five hurled shrieking from the rooftop of a four-story townhouse. The poor, to dispel their hunger pangs, had taken to eating a mash of linen fibers and water. I had just turned 20 years old. Proof that I was a little too devout for my own good was my belief that our city had been gifted generously with the stark significance of Torah. To me, there was a terrible, timeless beauty and horror to everything. Even the filthy feet of the recently deceased, sticking out from the burlap of their sour-smelling plague carts, possessed a sad and reverent grace. For they made our thoughts turn to man's mortality and to our covenant with God. Richard Zimler, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, I just had a visit from Jeffrey Masson, who became famous, so I guess about 20 years now uh, ago, for writing a book about uh, Freud and his, the discoveries he made about Freud's uh, suppression of a theory he had while Jeffrey was working as the director of the Freud archives. And the book is called The Assault on Truth because it's Jeffrey's contention that Freud abandoned his theory about the abuse of children because of pressures he received from his colleagues and pressures of the Victorian society back then. And so I found it a fascinating book and it changes your whole idea uh, about Freud and the suffering that Freud went through to, to establish his new science of psychoanalysis and also the investment that uh, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists have made in keeping Freud as an icon that you can't touch because of course Jeffrey got into a huge amount of trouble for writing this book and I think it's a great book and, and really fun for anyone who's interested in, in psychology and psychiatry. Richard Zimler, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious here in Oporto, Portugal. Thank you for having me. Richard Zimler is the author of The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon and lives in Porto, Portugal. The book he recommends is The Assault on Truth by Jeffrey Masson. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website radiocurious.org 
And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.